0: Before we get started, I wanted to thank Prevail Infoworks, the sponsor of today's podcast. Prevail Infoworks is the only global, full-service, tech-enabled CRO and e-clinical service provider harnessing historical and publication data alongside ongoing study data in real time. Get the most out of your study data and schedule a demonstration of this service for yourself at www. PrevailInfoworks.com, and be sure to meet the Prevail team at the Outsourcing Clinical Trials East Coast Conference in May, or at their offices in Philadelphia. Again, take a moment and explore their new look website at www.prevailinfoworks.com. Check them out. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Mm-hmm. anticoagulants can prevent life-threatening blood clots for people with cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. The problem is that because of their mechanism of action, they also work to suppress the body's ability to stop bleeding as it should. As a result, these therapies can be underutilized by patients who need them. Anthos Therapeutics is developing an experimental monoclonal antibody that can suppress coagulation without disrupting hemostasis, the biological process of stopping bleeding. We spoke to John Glasspool, CEO of Anthos, about the problems of existing anticoagulants, the novel target its monoclonal antibody works on, and how it's able to uncouple the pathways for thrombosis and hemostasis. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Danny, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the call.
0: We're going to talk about Anthos Therapeutics, its experimental next generation anticoagulant in development, and why it's needed. Let's begin with the problem of heart attack and stroke caused by cardiovascular and metabolic disease. How significant a problem does this represent today?
1: Well, what we know from epidemiology studies, Danny, is this: is uh, you know those diseases are going to cause one in four Americans' death, um, and obviously it's you know the biggest risk factor for those diseases, age. And unfortunately, we're with the exception of the COVID period, we're in a you know in a period where we're all aging and society's aging. So it's it is still the number one killer in terms of uh, Americans today.
0: Before we talk about anticoagulants. Can you explain the difference between hemostasis and thrombosis and, and how the two are linked?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the way we say it, Danny, is physiological hemostasis. So hemostasis that the body's got there for good logical reasons um, to protect you You know, when you, have, when you have a cut or when you have some trauma in order to uh, naturally protect you. So of course you cut yourself, you start to bleed, you clot, the clot forms, and then you you start to heal. Um, when we come on to thrombosis, then we talk about pathological thrombosis. And obviously, that is the body clotting, um, but not not in a way that's naturally good for you and, and beneficial for you. Uh, and, and so the thrombus is what, then what leads to those issues such as a a stroke or, or a myocardial infarction we talked about in the beginning. So we're trying to what we're trying to do is protect you from a thrombus whilst keeping your hemostatic system intact.
0: How targeted are existing approaches today to anticoagulants?
1: Well, what we've seen is um, a key, a key um, improvement in terms of the DOAX versus warfarin. Um, so there was some improvement, but essentially all of the current agents um, work in the common system um and and essentially uh they you know they do protect you from thrombosis and anybody that's out there I you know obviously please stay on your medication that's the best thing to do to protect you from thrombus but equally unfortunate they do cause bleeding so they do interfere with that normal hemostasis and so you see an increase in bleeding um some of it you know serious but uh, you know much of it also a nuisance bleed such as bruising um, which leads people to to feel less confident in their medications, thinking it could to lead to a larger bleed and, and causes a lot of discontinuation. And with the risk, with the current agents of, of people bleeding, about 30% of people remain untreated. So there's a significant need to protect people within this current paradigm.
0: So there are plenty of people using anticoagulants like warfarin or coumarin or heparin what's the biological mechanism of action here with those anticoagulants so
1: what what they're what they're doing is inter they're inter predominantly and we'll we'll talk about the newer ones they're predominantly into you know interfering if you will in the common pathway around factor 10 and factor 10 is involved in in normal hemostasis and um in the protection of thrombosis and that's the issue that they do protect you from clots and but And yet they do increase that, that level of bleeding just by the fact they're interfering with your normal hemostatic system.
0: I, I understand there's, there are issues with the, those anticoagulants, but there's concern about them being underutilized. Is it that they're underdosed, that patients don't comply because they're fearful of them, or doctors don't prescribe them as aggressively as they should?
1: Danny, you're very well informed. In fact, all of the above, um, people you know, are worried about the bleed risk. Um, so some of them don't, they don't adhere. Clinicians worry about some of their more fragile patients. And so they don't, they think the risk of omission is less than the risk of commission as in the, they're worried more about the bleeding in that individual than about the event. Um, and and because of the bleeding and because of potentially, say, for example, daily injections on one of the treatments, then, then people also don't adhere. And this is why you, we believe 30% of people are untreated and many other people are undertreated.
0: I know there was a, a recent study that suggests bleeding rates in the real world in atrial fibrillation, patients using anticoagulants, was higher than in clinical trials what did that study find and, and what's the significance of that?
1: Well, I think, you know, the key, the key factor that we know, of course, is that, you know, you get a very defined population in a clinical trial. Um, there's many risk factors that they don't have, such as, you know, they tend to have better kidney function. They tend to be uh, younger. They tend to be uh, not on antiplatelets uh, due to the control of the trial. And what we know is once you get into the real world, um, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, what we see is, uh, you know, that the, the bleed rate from the clinical trial is almost the lowest you're going to see. Um, and, not, and, and, and what we see is once you're in the real world, you see that increase in the rate of bleeding.
0: Does that suggest that physicians are working under a, a misunderstanding of how significant the, the problem might be?
1: No, I think the real world data probably gives you a, a bigger explanation of, of why people are, are untreated. So if we look at the controlled trials, for example, you know, people will argue that only, you know, three to 4% of people have a major bleed in the trials. And one might say, well, that seems quite low. But when you look at the total bleeding, even in the controlled trials, you're at 18% with any kind of bleeding. And, and of course, we all have grown up with to say that bleeding is not natural, right? We're trying to not bleed, and so when we see bleeding in any place, um, then it's not natural, and that we think undermines undermines all therapy. And of course, once you're in that real world setting that we just discussed, that in fact the you know the the, the you know the bleeding is more prevalent than the controlled trials due to. The opposite of the clinical trial criteria, so patients are older, they're more likely to donate an antiplatelet, they have some degree of renal impairment, they have some degree of liver impairment, and all of a sudden the bleed rate, once you're exposed to that wider population, um, we think based on that, that work that inevitably that bleed rate goes up. So physicians and patients get more exposed to bleeding than, than the controlled clinical trials would suggest with the current agents.
0: Your lead program is ablastimab. This is an experimental monoclonal antibody. How does it work?
1: So as you say, the, the drug is experimental. What we, what we know um, from the pharmacology is what, how the drug works is the following. It acts in a different part of the bleeding and clotting cascade. It acts on factor 11. Um, it does two things. It's got a dual activity in that it inhibits factor 11, the zymogen, as well as the activated factor 11, And so we know, and we had a study published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine in July last year, that it's very effective at stopping, stopping clots. Um, we, know, we know that from that study because we, we saw a greater than 80% improvement over the, the current standard of care in reducing clots. What we believe is, is advantage, and we need to, of course, prove this in controlled clinical studies, is the fact that factor 11 can pharmacologically uncouple uh, hemostasis and bleeding. So by inhibiting that factor rather than factor 10, we can leave your normal hemostasis system intact, not increasing bleeding, and and yet protect you from the pathological thrombosis. And that's what we hope to prove in in our ongoing clinical trials.
0: There are a number of experimental therapies in development seeking to target factor 11. The fact that your antibody can target both factor 11 and the activated form is, is that a point of distinction for you?
1: Well, first of all, Danny, we're, we're very happy that many companies see the potential benefit of factor 11. We think that supports our hypothesis that this is going to be a, a paradigm shift within the protection of people from thrombosis. So we're We're really happy to see other molecules in development. We're the only one at this stage that we're aware of has a dual activity uh, in inhibiting both the factor 11 as well as the activated form of factor 11. Um, Obviously, this is a hypothesis at this stage, but we believe that by inhibiting both 11 and 11a, we can bring about more profound suppression of factor 11. So a greater suppression of, of factor 11, which we believe can convey into a, a more effective uh, agent uh, in terms of preventing clots. We see that appears to be the case in cross-study comparisons, uh, but that's why we believe that, that that dual activity may be beneficial and we hope to, you know, prove that hypothesis in further clinical trials.
0: What's known about the antibody from studies that have been done to date?
1: What we know about, you know, from studies that have been done to date are you know, it, it can reduce, um, essentially can reduce your factor 11 uh, markedly. So we can essentially bring about almost 100% suppression in your factor 11 um, with the with the higher dose. Uh, we know that it doesn't cause um, an, any dose-related increasing bleeding. So we, we know that. And we know that it's very, very effective at protecting you from a clot. Um, so we already know a great deal about this. This drug and, and how it behaves. And now we're in larger phase three trials. We'll obviously hope to go on and, and prove the overall profile based on this hypothesis that factor 11 can give you protection without increasing your, your bleeding um, pharmacologically.
0: The phase two study compared it against standard of care. How did it compare in both in terms of efficacy and safety?
1: So the study is very much, you know, the the proof of concept, which is a TKA model. Um, so you're undergoing operation, and then on a on a readout called venography, uh, you're looking at the the development of clots on that venogram. Um, we were comparable in 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 safety. Obviously, the study is not is very short, so it's a 10 to 12 day readout, but comparable in safety. So no real difference in safety. Not that we would expect to see any differences in safety in that length of study, but most importantly, it was it had a greater than eighty percent reduction on the development of those clots on venography. So, really supporting the fact that at at that point in time, that this drug is inhibiting the development of clots very effectively compared with well-established standard of care.
0: And what's the what is the trial design for? The phase three, how big a study are you doing, and what are the endpoints you're using?
1: So the uh, the phase the phase three program is in cancer associated thrombosis, um, and so what happens in this situation is you're you're undergoing uh, you've developed cancer and you present with a clot, uh, and obviously you intervene at that point in time with abilicumab. Um and obviously our our study is two different trials, because we have two different comparators. Uh, one study is versus low molecular weight heparin, and the other study is versus a DOAC. If you, the reason that one of the comparators is low molecular weight heparin is because patients with GI or GU cancer have a higher bleed rate, uh, and the, the recommended treatment is low molecular weight heparin. So in that study, that's the comparator, and the other study, which is all other cancer types, it's a DOAC. The two studies combined are over 2,200 patients. Um, and obviously, the endpoint point is, is res- resolution of the clot in comparison with the, the comparator. So we're looking for both efficacy and, and safety in those studies.
0: There's a, a broad set of patients who can benefit from anticoagulants. How are you determining what indications to go for?
1: We're, you know, as you say, there are many places where people run the risk of developing a clot. The way that we've looked at the market is to look at where uh, is there a significant unmet need um, where we think that this product will encourage clinicians to treat more patients. Um, So, for example, our starting indication of cancer-associated thrombosis, everybody gets treated um, or should be treated, but no one has actually got an FDA indication for that treatment. Um, And so this is an area where we've recognized we think people would get treated more effectively and for longer um, to give them that protection if somebody developed an FDA approved drug. And so that's why we've started in that, in that indication. Our next indication is we're looking at places where patients are untreated for a number of reasons. Um, so we can bring our therapy to make sure physicians feel comfortable giving people the benefit of anticoagulation um, and so get more people treated in the future.
0: And are you going to have to pursue this on an indication-by-indication basis, or is there a broader label you think you might be able to to pursue?
1: Um, We think in this particular space, most people would anticipate that we we would need an indication-by-indication process. Um, In some disease areas, such as pain, you can go for three different pain types uh, in order to get a broad indication. Uh, Given the relative differences in risk, um, in terms of the development of clot and the risk of bleeding, we think this is more likely to be, need to be an indication by indication disease area.
0: And and how's the company financed here and and how far will existing funding take you?
1: So we were formed, uh, Anthos Therapeutics was formed by by uh, an agreement between Blackstone and and Novartis. So Blackstone, a private equity company, uh, are our financial backers. Um, And our current funding uh, will see us through to the end of the, uh, the phase three clinical trials.
0: And do you expect to commercialize the drug on your own?
1: We, we, you know, we think the cancer thrombosis area is a uh, very manageable um, indication for a small company. So we think we can commercialize that ourselves in the United States with partners XUS. And And we think as we get into the larger indications, then we would seek a commercial partner to help. Uh, that commercialization
0: process. John Glasspool, CEO of Anthos Therapeutics. John, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Danny, I appreciate you taking the time, and I just want to close by thanking you, but also thanking all the physicians and patients who are enrolling patients in our clinical trials. That's the only way that we develop new science, and we very much appreciate their support.